It is always a treat when Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eric Newhouse joins me on Gesundheit with Jacobus. A man with an incredible mind and a passion for humanity, Eric focuses most of his work these years on our veterans. This time around, he would like to discuss how PTSD involves a component of moral injury, such as being ordered to violate your own moral code. What are some of the treatment options for that? Please visit his website, ericnewhouse.com, anytime and hear him speak this Saturday morning from 8 to 11. Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. It's so nice to be with you. We had a little uh, a little mishap there. Let's see, it shows you that Chuck is not in the studio anymore. I, My good man, Eric Newhouse, is on the program with me today. He's on the show and uh, we have really, really an exciting three hours coming your way. And not only that, uh, Eric would love to come back sooner than he has been on last time. Uh, we're going to talk to him again next month, and we're going to do part two of this very important topic that deals with our veterans. You're listening to Gesundheit with Jacobus, as the promo just said. We are on every Saturday morning from 8 to 11, talking about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles. Talk about the body, mind, and spirit. Have the experts on. Let them chat about their expertise, their passion, research, their profession, books they have written, things of that nature where we can pick their brain. Not only just pick their brain, but really give them a chance to elaborate on what they are doing. So we as listeners become more educated about a specific topic and we can talk with them, and you can call in and ask questions, give comments about that specific topic that is your concern as well. As always, keep in mind that we're not here to diagnose, treat, or cure. It's always about education, information, and some entertainment. And uh, we have been going on for almost 17 years on the show. Learned a lot. I've learned a lot. I've talked to some amazing people. Not some. I've talked to primarily amazing people. I, I'm just I'm just amazed by the amount of listeners out you out there who have been with this program for so long. I, I've talked to several of you who have been listening almost since the beginning, since we started in the year two thousand. So that is really an honor that you are stuck with me, that you that you have been sticking with me for that long. You're not stuck with me. You can turn me off anytime you want. But uh, anyway, let me tell you a little bit about Eric. Eric Newhouse has earned his reputation as a crusading journalist, winning the Pulitzer Prize in the year 2000 for a year-long st series of stories about alcoholism. Absolute fascinating book if you want to pick that up. Alcohol, Cradle to Grave. Wonderful book. And he did that while he was working for the Great Falls Tribune. Through personal in-depth interviews, he has seen the devastation caused by PTSD from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the ongoing trauma for veterans from Vietnam and other American conflicts. 
Newhouse's crusade is to get the young men and women who have served their country on the battlefields the help that they need and deserve. Eric Newhouse has been a journalist for 45 plus years. The first half of his career was as a reporter, correspondent and bureau chief for the Associated Press, working in Baltimore, New Orleans, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Pierre, South Dakota, St. Louis and Charleston, West Virginia. The second half of his career has been in been with the Great Falls Tribune in Montana, up there. And uh, he now resides in West Virginia to be closer with his family. There's some amazing read that you can get to if you go to ericnewhouse.com, as I mentioned in my promo, ericnewhouse.com. There's also his book, Faces of Combat, PTSD and TBI, and it's called Faces of Combat. Dot us. The book, of course, is called Faces of Combat, and uh, but the website is facesofcombat.us. And otherwise, you can go to psychologytoday.com, psychologytoday.com, a, a website that more and more people, I understand, are getting into. They, they say, I want to know something about psychology. They go to psychologytoday.com, then forward slash blog, and forward slash invisible wounds. And um, it, it, it's great read. Now, of course, you can read also many of these articles on Eric's website, ericnewhouse.com. Click on blogs, and then you can find that. Now, Eric's publisher, Idle Arbor Inc., has pledged to send a free copy of Faces of Combat to a Veterans of Foreign War post or a VA vet center for each copy that he sells. So that has the potential of getting more of his books into the hands of vets who need to read them. And uh, so that is quite the offer. I, I want to welcome you back to Montana, Eric. I know you are, you're an old vet over here in Montana yourself, working as long as you have had, but I really appreciate you joining us right here on Bozeman, Montana. Good morning. Good morning, Jacobus. It's always a pleasure uh, to think with you on this radio show and to talk with your listeners uh, who call in with some great questions. Yes. I remember having been stumped several times. <laughs> well, I uh, it, it's part of the conversation, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it's a wonderful one to have. And obviously, uh, you as a journalist, you are interviewing so many people, so I'm sure you get stories that just blow you away. Yes, I, I've talked to a bunch of folks who've been in a lot of pain, and I can understand why. We don't do enough to help them. Uh, we don't really know how to fix them, uh, although I've got some theories about that that, uh, that we can discuss. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned uh, my publisher, and I just wanted to tell you that uh, they are in the process of um, printing my third book. Uh, it will be called Faces of Recovery, and it should be out within uh, the next month or two. Oh, wow. And it'll be a look at how... Uh, how vets are overcoming post-traumatic stress disorder uh, and learning to live lives that are semi-normal again. Uh, mm -hmm. They're able to re-acclimate into society, mm -hmm. and that's an important message for all of us to uh, to know about, to understand, and uh, it shows us, I think, how we can help them. Yeah. You know, Eric, I uh, right before the program, I said uh, to you of the air, you know how when it was the last time you were on, and... and I, didn't, I had no clue. I didn't remember because I really thought it was 
maybe a year and a half, two years ago. Oh, I was thinking five or six. No, it was not. It was uh, December 2012. Oh, okay. Well, I think that is very long because I remember that I remember that uh, that interview so well when we talked about traumatic brain injuries. Mm-hmm. And um, I, 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 I said, that's impossible. That's four and a half years almost. <laughs> you know, that's long. Yes. Now, we have, you and I have a full agenda. And I, I don't want to delay. I, uh, there is a lot that you and I need to talk about and want to talk about that you want to talk about for sure. Absolutely. And, absolutely. Now, there is... And and I'll see if I can replay the promo in a little bit, but I know that it has been playing really well on the radio this week that you were going to be on and what you were going to talk about. But one of the things that when we discussed the program a few weeks ago, a month ago, you said what is a new thing that has really come up for you is the PTSD as far as it has to do with moral injury. Can you highlight to our listeners what you're talking about? Yes, I can. Uh, Traditional PTSD uh, has to do with being um, traumatized by what other people are trying to do to you, Uh, traumatized by people who are trying to kill you. And when you come home, uh, you're always on alert, and you're thinking, this has happened to me before, it can happen to me again. Uh, I may be back in the middle of Montana in a nice, safe place, but... There can be terrorists everywhere, so I've got to be looking at uh, rooftops. I've got to be checking windows. Uh, I've got to be hyper alert all the time. Yeah, that is uh, traditional PTSD. Yeah, in a nutshell, the moral injury aspect of it is something that's been coming out in the last uh, five or six years, uh, and that is that you are not so much concerned about what you about what others are doing to you as you are about what you have done to others or what you have failed to do for others. Wow. Uh, That is to say, um, you may have killed uh, some folks. uh, You may have done it deliberately. You may have done it uh, uh, accidentally. But that uh, weighs on your mind, and it becomes uh, a form of moral injury. Uh, There's a second form of it, uh, which is basically betrayal. Now, your country uh, or your or your um, the authorities above you uh, have actually forced you to do something that uh, that you believe is immoral, and you you feel betrayed by what uh, they have done to you. Hmm. Wow, that is uh, it's totally understandable, and I I I, I see I've seen several war movies that have come mm-hmm. out in the last couple decades, and. It's interesting how that specific aspect is very strong in the character building of the movies. Um, even like Full Metal Jacket, uh, for example, or mm-hmm. you know, Born on the Fourth of July, or um, you know, the, the Platoon. Uh, you see, you see movies there, and you you can agree or disagree with the politics of it, but that is something that has indeed been highlighted. That you see these young people. And these days, there are also more women involved in combat, not just men. And women have often a better grips with their emotional body than men. So that's really an interesting thing, how women indeed deal with that. And I don't know if you have talked with women veterans or if you have actually 
primarily talk to male veterans? Well, I've actually talked to both. Um, and I think that the prevalence of uh, <clears throat> moral injury among women is perhaps greater than men. Um, there is the, the, the whole issue of military sexual trauma, oh. uh, MST. Yes. And that is uh, a huge problem. I see. But... Uh, well, and actually uh, last night I just heard on the news that... Um, in the Marines, about at least 10, but perhaps 30 women have been photographed in the nude, and it has been published on some secret Facebook page. That's what I heard mentioned on the news last night uh, uh, on the radio. On the Marines now, all branches of the service are investigating, and they're discovering that uh, this is, is more widespread than, uh, than just a uh, segment with the Marines. You can imagine how those women feel. Um, that they have been betrayed by the people that uh, are supposed to be watching their backs. Right. It's, uh, it's a uh, terrible injustice, uh, and all of a sudden you discover you can't trust anybody. I talked with um, uh, a member of the Wisconsin National Guard, a woman named Jennifer Sluga, and Jennifer told me that... Uh, she and a buddy had been in basic training. Uh, they'd been working hard. Yeah, they both were uh, feeling lousy. Uh, they went to uh, the clinic. One gal got sent to the hospital. Uh, the other one was examined by the, uh, uh, the a doctor uh, who, as she told me, uh, had considerable rank on his chest. Um, he began ordering her to take off her clothing, and uh, as she did so, she realized that there there was no medical reason for her to be doing this. Um, as he began to grope her, she uh, broke free and ran out of the doctor's office, uh, only partially clad, ran to her dorm because she said uh, she wanted to cry and take a shower uh, and uh, so that she could feel clean again. She was seen there, and... Um, Somebody reported the doctor, uh, and he ultimately went on trial uh, and confessed to having uh, uh, sexually assaulted uh, 70 different uh, female National Guards women. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, now, this was something that that uh, I suspect was, well, first of all, yeah, imagine how she felt. Uh, she, she felt as though... Uh, she had been betrayed by the National Guard. Uh, she felt that uh, it probably was known or rumored, or somebody must have known, and it was tolerated or at least ignored. And she just felt totally, totally violated. Huh. And yeah, that's course. something that is not part of uh, uh, the American Medical Association uh, uh, definition for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, it's something that's that uh, if <clears throat> if she went uh, and tried to tell him that she had PTSD, uh, they tell her, uh, "Hey, have you been shot at? No. Uh, you know, I, have you been in fear of your life? No. Well, get a grip and uh, get on with it." And why why do you think that is? By the way, because we're all people. But why do you think that the upper uh, the upper brass is talking like that 
um, is that really to make people tough or is it because they, they know there is a problem but they cannot address it so they would try to shove it under the rug? What, what's the scoop here? I suspect both. Uh, there is no <clears throat> medical diagnosis that will allow them to, uh, uh, to give her a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. However, she told me that uh, uh, after she got out of the service, uh, she went, to, uh, uh, went back to college. And she had been a, an A student before she went into the service. Uh, now she was lethargic. She couldn't sleep. Uh, she couldn't do anything. Yeah, she was, uh, she was you know, afraid of going to class because she didn't want to be around people. She was isolating herself. Uh, her grades dropped to D's and F's. Huh. Uh, and at one point she said she was sitting, uh, sitting in class and the professor handed back exams, and one of the students uh, said, this is a terrible grade, I really just feel like I've been raped. And she said she blew up, she wanted to jump over the desk and scream at this girl, <laughs> what do you mean you've been raped? Did you ever feel powerless? Have you had people uh, groping you? Uh, that's inappropriate. Yeah. yeah. And when she realized uh, what she was going through, uh, and when she had that breakup, uh, that huge breakthrough of emotion, she did go and get uh, counseling. Mm. And she began to understand what it was and began to deal with it. Yes. Uh, but it's just not in the uh, AMA definition at the moment. Uh, and a, a bunch of us are working very hard to change that. Well, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And it probably should have happened a long time ago. And yeah. I think that you and I have talked about that uh, uh, before that the fact that the social media has grown so quickly, we are, we are at any place in the world, at any situation in the world, within a second, within 10 seconds, when it happens. There is no delay anymore. So if, if news comes up, we can read about it. If we want to look for a certain topic, we can find it. When you go back to the First and Second World War and Vietnam, Vietnam, we had TVs already. But yeah. so many soldiers have gone and dealt with the similar emotions and similar trauma and similar put-downs and similar cases of uh, violence and being violated against that may never have come out. How many times have we heard of soldiers who have come back from the war and never spoke about it again? And, and just live their life, uh, but always carried that with them, the trauma that they had. Now, it's more in the open. So I know it has happened throughout the centuries, let's face it. Anytime, as long as people have been in war, trauma has been part of life. Losing a friend, losing a limb, losing, uh, you know, losing, uh, losing the battle, uh, whatever it is. It's always been trauma, as long as, long as there has been wars. So it's been a very, very uh, hard battle, but now it's all out in the open. I talked with a filmmaker uh, whose father um, had been in World War II and had never talked about it. Uh, he was nearing the end of his life, uh, and suddenly uh, his daughter, Karen Van Buren, was doing a film about... Uh, end-of-life situation for uh, for vets, and she was telling her dad about it, and her dad, uh, who was knew he was dying very soon, 
said to her, I've never told you, but when I was 18 years old, we were in occupied, uh, uh, occupied uh, Belgium. Yeah. And uh, my friend and I killed an enemy soldier. Uh, we strangled him to death. And now he'd been dealing with that every day of his life uh, for 60 or 70 years at that point and couldn't talk about it. Yeah. Um, Bessel van der Kolk, whom, who has written a fascinating book called uh, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, has done some neurological research uh, that, that uh, explains why the... Uh, why vets are not able to talk about what they've been through. Yeah. What well, we're going to uh, do, I really, Bessel van der Kolk and his book, The Body Keeps the Score, I have it with me here in the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, fascinating book. Um, and, and and the man and what he has done. That, that, ta- that we definitely need to give it a little bit more time on that. We have to actually go to a break. So before I, before you go really into it, we're going to take a short break, Eric. That's and fine. Then we'll, uh, when we come back, we'll, we'll jump into that. Uh, Folks, Eric Newhouse is my guest uh, this morning on Gesundheit with Jacobus. Uh, he is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and he has written several books. Uh, on now he's totally focusing on veterans. Please stay tuned. We will be right back. Eric, I really appreciate uh, you are with me. So we- well, Jacobus, uh, I've done a lot of work with brain injuries as well, uh, and that's very, very difficult. In fact, the, uh, the Veterans Administration is making it very difficult to, uh, for vets with TBIs to get a, a TBI diagnosis. Uh, I've done a bunch of work um, uh, with a vet named Charles Gatlin, uh, who is up in Missoula. Uh, he was blown up by uh, uh, a roadside bomb you know, that was being carried in a, in a big truck. Uh, he was unconscious for ten or well, he was blown up in the air. He was hit in the head uh, with a piece of the engine block. Uh, he uh, hit the ground and hit his head again. Uh, was unconscious for ten to fifteen minutes. Suffered some major uh, brain damage, and he. Uh, uh, this was, if I remember, in two thousand and six. Yeah, they gave him. Uh, uh, extensive testing, uh, like a two-day battery of tests in 2006. They gave him a, a second battery of tests, again two days, uh, in 2007. Uh, and then uh, in 2009, they concluded that, that uh, the damage was permanent. Uh, and so he received a honorable discharge from the Army with a 70% disability rating. He uh, went to... Missoula, but came down to uh, uh, to Helena to uh, uh, get a VA testing. Yeah, and they gave him a fifteen minute uh, test. Uh, it was just a, a sort of a scan test, uh, and concluded that he only had ten percent um, TBI disability and another thirty uh, percent post traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, he'd had no PTSD diagnosis before, and he fought that uh, he fought that diagnosis uh, for almost four years uh, before the 
Veterans Administration finally looked at the Army testing and concluded that, uh, yes, he did have uh, a, a substantial TBI. Yeah. But it took him four years of, uh, of going to Washington, appearing before the VA Appeals Board, um, writing letters, uh, you know, submitting to all the different forms. It, it was sheer torture for him. Absolutely. I mean, that was the last thing he needed. Yeah. And there's nobody, uh, and, I, and, and nobody in the regular, and this is another thing many people don't get, mm-hmm. is that the regular people don't even know where to start. You know, and not regular people, if you're not in that business, I look at my business and I look at what, what I have learned over the years and I talk to people who are very educated people, but if they know nothing about vitamins and supplements, it's it's a, it's Latin to them. And if yeah. you're, you're a veteran and you have served your country at a very young age, you come out of there and now you find out, well, you got a problem, you got to fill out paperwork, they don't even know where to start. And and where are you finding help? And it is with everything. If you're not, if you don't know how things work, so things really need to be cleaned up. Things need to be streamlined, uh, need to be opened up for the veterans that who need help, who ask for help. That is much better service for these people. Absolutely. The I talked to the guy who runs the uh, brain injury uh, division of the Veterans Administration guy named Dr. Saifu, and he explained to me that that uh, they basically base a TBI diagnosis on how you are functioning at the moment. They have no baseline way to check what, uh, what you had lost, uh, and so if there are no ongoing symptoms of traumatic brain injury, uh, they won't give you a diagnosis for it. Consequently, if you look at uh, at the armies, uh, at the number of army diagnoses for TBI, and compare them uh, to the VA's diagnosis, uh, uh, the VA is about twenty percent of what the uh, Department of Army is, huh. and uh, the uh, the VA has now been ordered to go back and re-examine. I think it's twenty five thousand. Uh, cases wow yeah to see whether uh, that di- that diagnosis uh, was was improperly withheld oh my goodness and oh so and, and once they figure that out yeah. then i'm sure somebody's going to say why did this happen why why did this uh, snafu happen well remember that this is our government uh, and they're trying to save taxpayer dollars uh, which is what we're hearing in the news these days uh, and uh, they can justify it by saying, well, you know, we're just trying to save money here, folks, mm-hmm. on the backs of the vets, which is unconscionable. But still, that's uh, that's the excuse I hear. Yeah. We've been talking about uh, moral injury. Y- yes. And there was a really interesting uh, guest column that was in the Washington Post not long ago. It was by... Uh, retired Marine Corps captain named Timothy Kudo, and he expressed that that uh, moral injury better than most people that, uh, that I've uh, talked to. He said, and I quote, I held two seemingly contradictory beliefs. Killing is always wrong, but in war it's necessary. How could something be both immoral and necessary? I didn't have the time to resolve this question before deploying, wrote Kudo, who 
2009 and to Afghanistan, Afghanistan in 2010 and 2011. He continues, and in the first few months I fell right into killing without thinking twice. Mm. We were simply too busy to worry about the morality of what we were doing. But one day on patrol in Afghanistan in 2010, my patrol got into a firefight and ended up killing two people on a mo- motorcycle we thought were about to attack us. Mm. They ignored or didn't understand our warnings to stop, and according to the military escalation of force guidelines, we were authorized to shoot them in self-defense. Wow. Although we thought they were armed, they turned out to be civilians. One looked no older than 16 years old. Wow. Kudo uh, uh, left the Army, left the uh, Marine Corps, and uh, returned to civilian life uh, and was going to college in New York City, but said that he, he thought about those two kids every day. Uh, he couldn't get them out of his mind. Uh, and that in itself becomes a moral injury. What one thing that I wonder in this case, of course I wasn't there, but I'm listening to your words. Yeah. What were these two young kids doing in a in an area where there was a lot of shooting going on? I mean, riding the riding the scooter right through the middle of the fire. Uh, no, they they weren't in the middle of the fire. Well, oh. yeah, I guess they were. Uh, I don't know whether they just. Uh, Happened to be innocent victims. Happened to be there uh, at the, in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's tough. But I do know that uh, I, I've talked to a bunch of people uh, who you know, shot innocent people because they thought they were a threat. And discovered that they weren't. Uh, I remember standing on a hillside uh, in northern Montana. It was. Uh, up a little bit uh, east of Haver. Yeah. And uh, talking with the parents uh, of a young Marine who'd been killed, he had come home on on leave about six months before, and he was obviously distraught. He told his mom that, that uh, he and a couple other Marines uh, were throwing candy to Iraqi kids. And one of the kids came too close, and they didn't know if he was armed or not. They thought he might be. They told him to stay away, and when he just kept coming closer, they shot him and discovered that, no, he was just a kid. Uh, And so this uh, young Marine said to his mom, kept saying to his mom, I killed an innocent Iraqi goat herd. Uh, And it I suspect it weighed so heavily on his mind that that uh, he didn't act properly in self-defense and ended up dead. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah. he's talking about the boy now. I was talking about himself. Yeah, no, I, I, I suspect that the young Marine was so concerned about the goat, goat herd that he made a mistake, didn't act in self-defense, uh, and was killed about six months later in action. Oh, my goodness. And I had a friend uh, uh, in Milwaukee named Mike Orban. Mike had uh, uh, Mike is a Vietnam vet, and he told me at one point that he had been uh, on patrol in the jungles of Vietnam. Uh, he was in a uh, in a no man's land, an area that uh, was posted for people to stay out of. And he saw two men and assumed that they were uh, 
went to check them out and discovered that uh, they were just uh, innocent Vietnamese farmers and huh. that uh, they weren't armed. Uh, they had no, uh, there was no indication that they were military. And he has been wrestling with that all the rest of his life. I can understand that. That is what you're talking about, moral injuries. That's exactly what I'm talking about. These are moral injuries. You know, it happens in in these moments, and you do it because you mm-hmm. you think that's how I was trained. I got to take care of it. I got to protect myself, yeah. and I got to protect other people. And then yeah. you you do things that afterwards you totally regret because it's it's totally against your own moral grain. Moral grain. Yeah, it is one thing when you're in the field and you feel that uh, you've got to kill or be killed. But once you get home and you're in relative safety uh, and you begin to question what you've done, uh, then you see things in a different light. Um, I think a lot of uh, non-vets in particular, uh, what, what they did at the time that they did it, they felt was justified. But when they got back home, they couldn't justify it to themselves. And so that became a form of moral injury, although it's something that the med- medical profession still doesn't recognize. Mm-hmm. Eric, one of the things, oh, folks, by the way, Eric Newhouse is my guest on Gesundheit with Jacobus this morning. And we're talking about veterans and PTSD and traumatic brain injury and moral injury which is a very big part now of PTSD. Not the fact that you did what you did and the effect it has had on you, but uh, the, like being in the war, but t- having taking being part of certain actions where you feel you either didn't protect the ones you were there to protect or you killed somebody who was not supposed to be killed. And then living with that for the rest of your life, those are moral injuries. But the moral injuries go even further. They all deal, also deal with uh, uh, military sexual harassment and, and, and trauma that Eric discussed a half hour ago, a little bit off. And uh, so the, there are so many things that are coming out of the war and out of the military these days that are traumatic. And we, we, uh, we need to address it. They need to be addressed. There need to, needs to be help. And uh, we're going to do another show with Eric in about a month where we're going to talk about certain therapies what can we do for that and because it's not just about realizing what has happened but now true healing true healing can only happen when it settles in in your own heart and in your own mind and and for many people in their own soul that wait a second what what happened here and how do i heal from here so that i can move on that this is not going to be a an emotional memory for the rest of my life, but that I can move on from here. And and that is that's the whole that's a whole new part. But when you are just being medicated, that you're just giving a pill and say, well, just here's a pill for trauma, you are not healing the problem. And most of these people, most of the soldiers, most of the veterans who go through that process where they're simply being medicated, they end up with severe trauma later on in life. And uh, that can be very devastating. And uh, two things, Eric. Uh, actually, well, there's so many things uh, I want to say, but uh, yeah. we we have we have some time. We have some time. Uh, you started talking about Bessel van der Kolk, and uh, we, we're almost again to the. We have about seven minutes on this segment, 
And Bessel van der Kolk, uh, folks, if you want to look him up, his name is Bessel. He's a Dutch guy, actually. He's a medical doctor who wrote a book. It's called The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. And Bessel van der Kolk is called, uh, his last name is van der Kolk, K-O-L-K, but his first name is Bessel, B-E-S-S-E-L, a very un-Dutch name. I never even heard about a name like that, Bessel van der Kolk. But you actually sat in a panel with him, Eric, and you heard the man speak. And this was, I'm, I'm sure, his book was, was part of the discussion. It was indeed. Uh, we were on a panel together uh, at the University of Pennsylvania's uh, Center for the Rule of, uh, Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law uh, in Philadelphia. And I was... Uh, we had just sat through a long talk on prolonged exposure therapy, which is basically the VA therapies are, are primarily talk therapies and and uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, and now the VA and the Department of De- Defense have come up with a new form of talk therapy that's called uh, prolonged exposure therapy. Okay, and it in it, it involves uh, just talking endlessly uh, at length about the things that torment you. And I asked Bessel about it later, and he said that's just terrible therapy. All it does is revictimize uh, the the people who need it the least. Uh, he said you can uh, you can quote me on that, and you should. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I did. Yeah, he doesn't Bessel, pull any punches, yeah. Yeah. Bessel uh, had had an explanation that I had not known before for why a lot of vets are unable to talk about what they, uh, uh, what they have been through, and that is that when the brain is traumatized, the prefrontal cortex, uh, the rational reasoning um, portion of the brain that's right behind our foreheads, shuts down. And all of the uh, all of the brain activity reverts to the amygdala, which is the limbic level of the brain. Uh, it is basically the brain's fight, flight, or fright center. Yes, uh, and it, uh, it it explains, I think, why vets some vets act in in seemingly irrational ways. One of the areas of the prefrontal cortex that uh, is shut down is something called the Broca's area. Uh, I think it's B-R-O-C-A. Yeah, that's how I read it. Yes. Area. Uh-huh. And that is the uh, language center for the the brain. Basically, it means that if the Broca's area shuts down, you can't talk about what happened. When you talk to vets, you'll often hear them say, "I don't have any any words to describe that." Right, uh, and that that's medically why they really don't have any words to describe it. So that is also why Bessel van der Kolk says that's horrible therapy because when you have that kind of trauma and the Broca's yeah. area is affected, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what happens; you will not be able to put into words what you really feel. That's exactly right. And if yeah, you cannot, yeah. if you cannot address, if you cannot na- call it by name, you're not able to actually start the healing process. 
That's exactly right. Uh, and what Bessel was saying uh, was that this particular form of therapy re-traumatizes. Uh, it activates uh, and it uh, accelerates that damage instead of helping it. Also on the panel was Dr. Edna Foa, uh, who is the creator of uh, you know, prolonged exposure therapy, and she swore it was uh, was great therapy. But I talked to a psychologist in Milwaukee, a gal named uh, Kathy Copolillo, mm. and Kathy uh, told me that she'd been talking with psychologists and psychiatrists all throughout the uh, Veterans Administration, and that uh, there was a common consensus that at least half of the vets who go through prolonged exposure therapy drop out before it's done and never get the help that they need. Mm, totally. Yep, totally. and I can and, understand that. Yeah, me too. And I think that is one of the, one of the big issues, uh, one of the questions that I have for you and that I would like to talk about maybe in the next uh, segment is uh, who are the people who are going to the military? Who are the people who are going in? And you have your thoughts about that. But the point, yeah. the point is that when we go to war, some people will come out and will be able to handle the trauma and other people will not be able to handle the trauma. And so as we are going through this, and another question I have for you, and that is hopefully you can, you, you have talked about this, but when we don't have time right now, is if you have ever had panels with international journalists like yourself who talk about the trauma that soldiers have who fight for other countries and who are participating in war, how they're dealing with trauma and stress, how the United States is different than other nations. Is that something that uh, you can talk to us about at one point, Eric? Yeah, I think I probably can. All right, well, um, we're going to take, let's take a short break, a break for the news, and when we come back, we'll jump on that, okay? That sounds good. All right. Eric, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you on the program. Oh, thank you, Jacobus. It's always a pleasure to be here, uh, to be able to think uh, with you and with your listeners. Uh, so I enjoy that opportunity. Well, thank you. And you had mentioned a moment ago uh, uh, my credo as a journalist. Yes. Now, what I say to myself is that uh, my job has always been to amplify the voices of those who would otherwise go unheard. Yes. That's uh, actually how you said it, and I couldn't find the sentence quick enough. <laughs> As I grabbed the article, I was going, where is it? And, uh, yeah, but that was beautifully said, beautifully said. And that is uh, truly so. And and as I mentioned earlier, uh, some people, we all have feelings and pain and trauma and happy moments and and and, and uh, jubilation, etc. However, not everybody is able to put it into words. And some people can talk about it, but they cannot write it down. But if you have somebody like yourself who interviews these people, gives them a chance to uh, to get to the point where they can speak from the heart instead of just telling the plain stories, but really get to the essence of what is what is spinning the wheels in their life and what has caused that, where it came from. Those are things, the things that you're looking for as a journalist. You say, can I help you? Would it be helpful to you if I write this down, if I can... Put this into words so that your story will not be lost and that there are other people who probably have very similar feelings and, and experiences who need to reread these words in order to find healing. 
yeah, I try to help people uh, tell their stories in the best way that they can. Yeah. And when there are problems um, that they're facing that, that uh, they don't have a solution for, uh, government isn't stepping in to protect them, uh, or they just feel totally defenseless or vulnerable, my job is really to tell those stories and let people know that uh, there's someone out there who's hurting, uh, who needs their help. And, yeah. uh, and it's amazing how people step forward and are willing to, uh, and are willing to you know, find some help for them yeah absolutely i we have you and i have a lot to talk about today and we have a caller who is patiently waiting to ask you a question oh, or okay. to make a statement so let our caller on good morning thank you for joining today what is your name how can we help you please this is mr step forward i oh. just heard my name mentioned uh, so i called <laughs> uh, i've been harping on my theory for uh, some time Maybe you have the moral authority to comment on this, that young people have a, a mild form of what you're describing. It's full between their moral sense and what society and their peer, peer group is trying to tell them. A young person may instinctively, intellectually feel one way, and rock music and hardcore Christians are telling them another thing. You could say uh, that they're getting... Effective directive is pulling at them both directions. Now, is your theory of military conflicting pulls wide enough to cover many situations and many types of people that feel one way and the world around them is pulling them another way? Uh, is there any other uh, everyday forms of this moral tug of war that you could think of? I agree with you that each of us has his own moral code. Um, the true Christians uh, say that um, Jehovah God wrote uh, the Bible and uh, set forth our, our moral code and later inscribed it into our hearts. Uh, it's been inscribed um, more fully in some than others. Uh, uh, and so moral injury is a, uh, is a very conflicting uh, term because all of us... Uh, react very differently to different situations. Uh, and we react differently to different situations um, depending upon the environment that we're in. Uh, if we're talking with uh, our buddies at the bar about what we've done, uh, that may be, uh, you know, we feel more comfortable uh, with that. If we're talking about those situations with our wives, uh, that may be a different story. Uh, if you need to talk about something with your pastor, that uh, you know, so it's uh, it's all across the board, and it explains why moral injury can uh, have many different forms. I appreciate the call. Very good, good, good point, uh, Eric. Talk about the moral injury and not being able to to verbalize that. You were talking about the Bracus area. Bracus area. Bracus yep. area. You now, yep. you as a journalist. When you find out something like that, you go like, "Oh my God, that is totally true." I gotta, I gotta research this. Have you been able to find people who are qualifying as such, who are who have had trauma, and who are just not able to put that into words, uh, either vets or veterans or other people who are just not able to verbalize their trauma? I had dinner in Washington D.C. about a year ago with uh, an Army lieutenant colonel named Bill Edmonds. Bill uh, uh, 
I think, an excellent example, number one, of moral trauma, number two, uh, of the inability of the uh, medical profession to recognize moral injury, and three, uh, of the inability to speak about it. Bill was uh, uh, a special forces officer, and he was sent to Mosul uh, in Iraq to oversee Iraqi interrogators. They were convinced that uh, everybody that they picked up was an insurgent uh, and that they needed to to torture him a little bit to get him to spill the beans on on, uh, uh, other insurgents. And Bill knew that that was not necessarily true. Uh, He was uh, very mindful of the Constitution uh, that says everyone is innocent uh, until proven guilty. And so he he insisted that the Iraqi interrogators uh, not use enhanced interrogation techniques on uh, the people that that had been picked up. Uh, they he had terrible battles uh, with the Iraqi uh, interrogators because they were convinced that if they couldn't get the goods on somebody, uh, that person would be set free, and then he'd go back and kill other people. And so they. They told him, in effect, by denying us the ability to torture our own people, you're putting your own soldiers at risk. Um, that created dissonance with him, uh, uh, as the last caller said, uh, that, uh, that created a moral tug of war with him. Mm-hmm. And so he uh, he didn't know what to do or how to do it, uh, and... The more he watched and listened, the more he began to side with the uh, interrogators and think that, you know, I I really ought to allow them to um, hurt this guy a little bit if it'll save American lives. Well, as he wrestled with that whole thing, uh, the the lead interrogator one day stood up and slapped uh, one of the insurgents across the face. Uh, and Bill realized that this was a, a direct a challenge to his authority. Uh, he resolved that by walking away from the prison and not going back and letting them basically do anything that uh, that they wanted. Oh. That created a huge burden of guilt within him. Um, later, he discovered that uh, there were, I think, nine uh, suspects uh, who were missing from uh, uh, an Iraqi prison that was overseen by Americans. Oh. And he couldn't figure out how they they could become missing. So he launched an investigation and later found them at a different prison. Uh, they'd all been badly, badly uh, mutilated. Wow. They were still alive, but wow. they'd been beaten, they'd been burned, they, uh, they'd been... Uh, uh, electrocuted. Uh, they had scars and wounds on them, uh, and it was obvious that uh, that they had been pretty severely tortured. Yeah, he didn't know what to do about that, and for four months or so, uh, he just sat on that information, unable to do anything with it. Finally, he got up his nerve and reported it uh, to the authorities, and the authorities thanked him very kindly, and uh, launched an investigation. And at the end of the investigation. Everybody was cleared. Ah, uh, that was wow. a second form of moral injury because yes. he felt that that he had done the right thing uh, and uh, the uh, the army had failed him. So 
came back to the uh, United States, and for a couple of years he was doing pretty much okay. And then he he discovered that he couldn't sleep, he couldn't eat, uh, he couldn't focus on anything. Uh, he, he just was falling apart. Yeah. Couldn't do any work, uh, and he was uh, having a terrible time. So he went to the uh, base clinic and told them that uh, he thought he had PTSD. They asked him, had he ever been shot at? And he said no. They asked him, was he in fear for his life? And he said no. And they said to him, well, it's not PTSD. Uh, uh, We'll give you some drugs to calm your anxiety down and uh, try and get back to work. Well, he uh, returned home, didn't take the drugs, uh, didn't know what to do, and uh, couldn't talk about what what was really troubling him. He, (coughs) excuse me, couldn't even tell the base psychologist, uh, you know, what it was that that was troubling him. Uh, But he did an interesting thing. He got up at about 3 o'clock every morning and went down to the kitchen, turned on the lights. He had a big yellow legal pad, and he began to think about what had happened to him and how it did. It had happened, who was at fault, and he would slowly, painfully, laboriously write all that down in longhand. And when he finally was able to write it down, then he was able to address it. Uh, And he turned those writings into a remarkable book. Uh, It's called God Is Not Here, and it's it's a powerful, powerful piece of writing. But it illustrates uh, the fact that writing can be a very effective therapy because it allows you to verbalize things that you can't really talk about because you've got uh, uh, the brokest area of your brain shut down. Yeah. And what is Bill's last name? Bill's last name is Edmonds, E-D-M-O-N-D-S. And he's still a lieutenant colonel operating out of the Pentagon these days. Wow. Wow. Is he able to uh, do anything with that experience and uh, right now in the Pentagon? What is what is he what is he doing in the Pentagon? Uh, I think he's with J Five, and I'm not, to be honest with you, entirely sure what that is. Okay. I think it's uh, he's he's one of the uh, uh, subordinates attached to the Joint Chief of Staff. Okay, and uh, he is. Yeah, I know he travels around uh, the world. Uh, on various military missions, um, but he also does an awful lot of work on moral injury. Uh, I know he's been on radio programs. His book is uh, is remarkable. Mm. Wow, yeah, thank you. Eric Newhouse, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist, crusading journalist, who wrote several beautiful books about alcoholism and his book on PTSD and TBI, We have discussed the book a few times. Today, we are discussing moral injury from that is part of PTSD, a a part of PTSD that is not often discussed, as he is just mentioning, have you been shot at? Have you been worried about your life? No, but you have been in situations where the the trauma affected you such, maybe you, 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 you killed innocent people, literally innocent people, because you didn't know and you thought that was an enemy, but you find out it's not. So, Or you have 
not done enough action to protect the people you were with, the people you, whose back you have to protect as part of being in combat, being in the military. And uh, that is a moral injury. And so it's really, really important, uh, very, very powerful topic that is often not discussed. And Eric's new book that will come out in a few months called The Faces of Recovery is, uh, I'm looking forward to that. And I know we'll have several meetings about that, hopefully, Eric, because it's so important that this is a topic that is being discussed as we continue. This is not a one-time thing but it needs to be addressed because there are so many people who are simply not able, like you say, to process the trauma. So as long as they know there is support somewhere, hopefully one by one, we see an opening and a healing, an opening of the topics and a healing of the wounds. Uh, that Because that is all part of healing society. If you have people who simply cannot process this and it starts to affect them inside their own home with living with their parents living with a girlfriend or having a wife and children that who have they've never seen while they were gone uh coming back to integrate in uh, with with the family is not an easy feat because now there is a whole new world that you have to participate in and where you have to uh, put effort into you got it living in a family as as you and I both know being married you and having children and grandchildren it's a whole different ball game it's uh, you have to constantly work on yourself when you think you got it all figured out there is something else happening that uh, that changes it up a little bit so uh, we have to work on things and if you haven't been able to deal with the trauma that you have had in your life I and from different causes but in this case today we're talking about trauma from being in the war serving your country uh, this is an important part to discuss so I appreciate you with me today Eric and I folks we are going to take another break but then we'll continue with Eric and so many more questions I, I can tell you that the agenda that we have in front of us for today uh, I think we're already behind so uh, we'll see how we go through and stay with us all the way till 11 o'clock we will be right back there are people who I mean who are the people who are going into war I mean it, it can be anybody but in reality it is not every anybody right now is that is that correct it's not universal uh, in the way it was uh, when we had a draft during the war in Vietnam. That meant that virtually everybody uh, had to serve. Now it's a volunteer army, uh, and the volunteers really come from two different areas. Um, I call them the, uh, uh, the P volunteers. The first P is uh, poverty. We're getting an awful lot of recruits. Um, from low-income families, uh, from uh, low-income neighborhoods. Uh, they see it as a way to, uh, to make money, have more money perhaps than they will uh, uh, anyplace else uh, that they can, can fashion a career. Uh, they tend to, uh, to be uh, not that well-educated, uh, and they may come from neighborhoods uh, in which... Uh, uh, there are gangs.
gangs uh, and there is violence. This is, uh, uh, and and this is a problem because we know that uh, post-traumatic stress is cumulative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if they had been traumatized uh, in civilian life before they entered the army, uh, there is a greater likelihood uh, that combat stress is going to affect them. The second P uh, volunteer is the patriotic volunteer. These are the guys uh, whose fathers and grandfathers uh, and uncles all served in the military, and they expect uh, to serve in it as well. I remember a. Uh, I remember a young man who had been an army ranger, I believe, uh, who was coming up from uh, from um, the Bluefield area up to Haver, where he was going to be in veterinary school. Um, he had been fairly traumatized uh, by the service, but it was even worse than that. Uh, he came from a family uh, in which his father was a Vietnam vet uh, who w- woke up screaming in the middle of the night with uh, with nightmares, and his grandfather was a World War One, a World War Two vet uh, who refused to talk about anything that he had been through as well. So this kid came from a, uh, a household that had high stress. Uh, it had uh, uh, periodic violence uh, and. And uh, I think you can argue that he was traumatized um, in his family life before he ever joined the service. Then after he got out, he, uh, uh, as I say, he uh, came up to Haver to to, uh, learn to become a taxidermist, actually. And he he flew up. Uh, and drank heavily on the airplane all the way. I think he was probably drunk before he got on the airplane. Uh, He had four or five drinks on the airplane, Uh, and the airline touched down in Great Falls. They had to subdue him uh, because he was out of control. He woke up in the the Cascade County Jail, and he had no idea what had happened to him. They told him what uh, the charges were and what he was alleged to have done, He called his mother uh, and told her he was in jail and told her why. And she called the Cascade County Sheriff and said, my son's a hero. Uh, He's he's a troubled hero, but a hero nonetheless. And she called uh, the Great Falls Tribune and talked with me and told me the same story. So I began to write about it and about him and about what he'd been through. And we ultimately... uh, yeah, the prosecutors read the stories and and uh, uh, made a deal with the judge uh, in which he was allowed to plead guilty, and uh, the judge sentenced him to uh, 30 days of uh, PTSD treatment, wow. which I thought was, was eminently fair. Yes. But uh, if, I think if you look at the, at the recruits today, uh, you see that uh, a majority of a majority of them come from those two areas, from patriotic families uh, that may be scarred by PTSD already, uh, or from backgrounds uh, that 
have been impoverished uh, and they've seen street warfare, they've seen uh, robberies, they've seen muggings, uh, and so when they get into combat, uh, they they they're weaker than uh, uh, somebody uh, somebody else would be. Yes. Wow, Eric, I posed the question in an earlier segment, and it, it kind of popped in my mind. And I, uh-huh. I want to ask you if if you have any research done on this. If you have had any, you've been on many panels and talked to experts. What we're dealing with in this country is that uniquely American. The um, uh, the uh, the PTSD, the moral injury. The dealing with uh, soldiers from poverty regions and from uh, po- poverty, a family with poverty or patriotic families. Is that very uniquely American or do you find that is happening in other countries, for example, in Europe, Western Europe or in, in Canada or in countries even in the Soviet Union or in Russia at this point? Have you done any readings or have had any talks about it how other countries are dealing with the issues that we're talking about today? The general consensus is that uh, combat causes trauma, uh, and that that's a universal. Uh, it occurs uh, uh, in all cultures and in all times. Uh, Jonathan Shea, who is a VA psychiatrist um, in Boston, uh, has written uh, a couple of books. One of them uh, that I have in front of me right now is called Odysseus in America. Uh, it's about combat trauma and the trials of homecoming. And basically what uh, Jonathan does is uh, is relate the story uh, of, uh, uh, of the Greek heroes uh, as they went out uh, fighting and then uh, you know, had difficulty coming home uh, and how uh, when they would come home, uh, for instance, they'd kill other people. Uh, somebody would be uh, uh, have moved into his house, uh, and he would kill the uh, uh, kill that person. There, there would be subsequent bloodshed. But Jonathan argues uh, pretty persuasively, I think, uh, that the uh, the Odyssey and uh, and several other of the uh, uh, of the Greek classics all have to do with uh, subjects who had PTSD. Right. Uh, there seems to be a, a growing uh, understanding that you can find PTSD in the Bible as well. Mm. Uh, there was a uh, there was a woman, as I recall, who said um, King Saul killed thousands, but King David killed tens of thousands. Well, as you look at the uh, the account of King Saul you see that he was a guy who was deeply troubled. Uh, he was moody, he was anxious, uh, he was irascible, uh, he would kill on a moment's notice. He tried to kill David three or four times, um, at least two or three times. Uh, and at one point, uh, it talked about when the evil mood was on him, uh, he would summon David uh, to come play a harp and sing to him. Hmm. Uh, now that's what we could know today is music therapy. I see, yeah. And he, uh, I think the record is is pretty good, and uh, a number of psychologists uh, also believe that uh, 
King Saul had PTSD. Mm. Um, there is some indication that David may uh, have had it as well, but uh, less so because in you know, for David, the battles that he got into uh, were the ones that uh, Jehovah God had uh, had told him to go fight, uh, and so he felt morally justified in having done it. Yeah. Uh, I think that there is a difference today in that that uh, many of our vets feel that the wars that we are fighting today are unjustified. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think that may be uh, a major contributor to the PTSD that we see in this country. These are guys, I talk to Vietnam vets uh, all the time, who say to me, what about Vietnam did we fail to learn? Why are we in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan today? Uh, and their argument is that is that there was no justification for us to be in Vietnam. Consequently, everybody that uh, they killed over there, they killed needlessly. And uh, you know, they had to kill to stay alive, but they they uh, came back feeling that that uh, there was no reason for us to be there, and and as a result. Everything that they did over there was uh, unjustified, and if you can't justify it, you feel guilty about it. I suspect that that's one of the reasons uh, that we have the kinds of PTSD that we have in this country. Uh, we're in Iraq and Afghanistan now, um, supposedly as a result of uh, 2011, um, but it... Uh, uh, as a result of the terrorist attacks uh, in 9-11. But uh, it, it, that really, Iraq was not really tied to those, uh, to, uh, to that terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting someplace that we don't really need to be fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're losing kids, uh, but we're also killing people that, that uh, are trying to defend their own country. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I, I, I know people listening may say, oh, so you're against war. That's not what you're saying, because your your main mission is to bring out the stories of those who have been fighting at the front lines, who have been at the war and who have stories to tell that they otherwise are not able to share with people. And, mm-hmm. and wherever your stories will take it, those who will read it will feel, you know, we, there is some rethinking to do that we as a nation need to do when you go to war. And I, th- I think the difference yes. um, is that in World War One and World War Two we were attacked. Uh, and so it was a defensive rather than an offensive war. Yes. Uh, and I think that while there was PTSD uh, in both of those conflicts, um, you know, we have uh, the term shell shock that, for instance. Yes. I think it's more traditional PTSD. Um, people who are afraid uh, of being killed because others have tried to kill them and they figure uh, it now can happen anytime, any place. Yes. And that's understandable. Yes. But I think we're seeing a different form of of PTSD today, uh, one that has to do more with moral injury. I, I uh, hear you completely. If yeah. there is no mm-hmm. reason for us to be doing what we're doing, yeah. if, uh, if we're in conflict uh, all over the, 
the world as we have been for the past 50 years. We have a almost constant string of military interventions in other countries uh, for you know no reason other than stopping communism or they were saving uh, people's lives or I don't know. It, it just a lot of the vets that I talk to yes. feel that that they have been sent into into conflict. Uh, for no justifiable reason, they feel as though their lives uh, were uh, impacted negatively for no reason. Yeah. They feel that they uh, were considered expendable, and they have lost faith in the government. They've lost faith in all authority. Uh, they they really feel that they have to fend for themselves because uh, otherwise they'll be sent out to set out to die. Yeah. And I, I, uh, it's a terrible place in which to be. Right. Yeah. I, I hear that. And, uh, and, and, and they don't want to be called a coward either because that can be part of the rest of their life too. If they are being told they should go or the friends are going or the, like you mentioned, the patriot, the patriotic family that they say, how come you don't go in this situation? Uh, your grandfather went and your great grandfather went and I went, you know, yeah, you should go. I was drafted in 1968, yeah. uh, and I did not want to go to Vietnam. But by the same token, I couldn't bring myself to disobey the law. I couldn't flee to Canada. I couldn't go anyplace else. Uh, I, I was obligated to do what was legally required of me. Uh, and so I served for two years in the Army from 1968 to 70. Uh, but, uh, and if they had sent me to Nam. Uh, I'm sure I'd have gone. Uh, and if I'd gone there, I, I, my life would have been in danger, uh, and I'm sure I would have been forced to kill other people to stay alive. Mm. And I would come home angry at the people who sent me there, suspicious of everything, uh, and determined uh, to save my own back. And that was and, at that time. You were aware of that back in 1968. Uh, I was aware. I was not aware of moral injury uh, in those days, although I felt it very keenly. I, I, uh, but I've seen what it did to the people of my generation, uh, and it's been increasingly obvious to me ever yeah. since. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Just amazing. Two hours are gone, Eric, and we're <laughs> barely scratching the surface here. Quickly. Uh, but these stories are so amazing, and, and I really appreciate your sharing your time with us over here in Bozeman today. I, I well, Folks, we have another hour to go with Eric Newhouse, and uh, please stay tuned for more. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, more with Eric after that. And I was looking over here at your book, Faces of Combat, and it says on page uh, 146, it says, no longer fit for a job. Many vets have trouble holding down a steady job after their return. Maybe your job just doesn't seem important after all they've been through. Maybe they don't feel they fit in with their coworkers. Maybe they cannot focus on work after brutal nights of grueling nightmares and days plagued with flashbacks. Or maybe it's all of the above. Quote, I could always get jobs but I could never hold them. I just couldn't handle the pressure. 
said Don Scott, a Vietnam vet who had 37 or 38 jobs before he was finally given a 100% disability discharge and allowed to retire. I'm sure that, Eric, you have heard many of these types of stories that people are just traumatized and when they come back to society, they're just not the same people as they were before they went to war. No, I've heard many of those stories. Um, thank you for mentioning Don Scott's name. I uh, can see him so clearly in uh, uh, in my memory. Mm. He, uh, for about 20 years, uh, while I was living in Great Falls, I taught at the uh, University of Great Falls. I'd uh, go up and teach journalism and uh, English three afternoons a week for an hour on my lunch hour, and I did that for two decades. Wow. John was one of my students, oh. uh, and so he uh, sat through my class, and uh, later he talked to me about the difficulties he had in concentrating uh, and uh, the fact that he was a vet, and so we broadened that uh, discussion out, and he uh, yeah, talked to me about all those jobs. Yeah. One thing that is that that I did not realize at the time I wrote that, or perhaps I just forgot it. But a lot of these vets uh, come back feeling that they have been betrayed, uh, and they they have been be- betrayed by their country. They've been betrayed by the army. Uh, they've been sent out into combat uh, that was unnecessary, and so they come back with a huge skepticism. They come back with a huge mistrust of authority. And most of the vets that I talked to have lost jobs, uh, just couldn't take an order anymore. Uh, they had to see for themselves. They had to try everything. They didn't trust the guy who was telling them to do what they, uh, what he wanted them to do. And so that was one of the reasons that uh, a lot of them uh, tended to get fired from their jobs. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you know, he... I mean, if you read this, if I read one more sentence over here, mm-hmm. soon after the 1968 Tet Offensive, Scott was sent to Vietnam as, a, as an infantryman. He says, I stopped counting combat experiences at 90, he said. And, that, and that's 90 times in combat, yeah. not 90 days. Sometimes mm-hmm. you get ambushed in the morning and then again in the afternoon, sometimes more than once. I mm-hmm. saw a lot of people killed. One of my closest friends sat down on a landmine, and a piece of shrapnel went through the back of his head, killing him. I stepped on a landmine and survived. I don't know how I did it, but I still got ten fingers and ten toes. You know, <laughs> you know, you know it, it's, uh, and he said, I, I remember riding on the truck and being ordered off it, told to walk instead. It got ambushed right after that, and six of the seven people on it were killed. Then set up a load of survival guilt. Mm-hmm. which is what we're talking about, questions of why he survived yeah. when his friends didn't, a question that frequently came out in flashbacks. Mm-hmm. And it says over here, um, yeah, and that is part of what he, what he said. Struggling with those issues, he worked briefly as a carpenter, insurance salesman, janitor, used car salesman, and cleaning supply agent. He mm-hmm. also held a number of jobs in heavy construction. When I was teaching school, the pressure really got to me, he said. The pain in my leg the nerve, the nerve damage from shrapnel was getting worse, and so was the ringing in my ears that I've been having ever since I stepped on the landmine. I mean, the stories, the pain, the the 
the the trauma i i you you write it so well in your books um it's just uh you know you, you're right there who needs tv if you have uh, your book in front of you <laughs> <laughs> well that is a compliment thank you no absolutely i i uh, just I appreciate talked to, uh, uh, a vietnam vet a couple of days ago and he uh, uh he's got a bunch of uh, He's got all his arms and legs, uh, but he's been shot up pretty badly. Uh, he held off a, uh, an NVA offensive almost single-handedly, uh, killed a whole bunch of people, uh, won a Brown Star as a result of it. And uh, uh, But at one point, he uh, they were taking so much fire from uh, uh, from a forested area not far from them that he called in an Agent Orange strike, and the pilot missed and, and dropped Agent Orange all over them. Wow. And so he's got, uh, uh, he's had, he told me that that uh, it feels like he has bees stinging him all the way from his toes to his fingertips, uh, oh. uh, that they're all inside him uh, and stinging him, uh, and he's pretty sure that that was uh, caused by the Agent Orange so he went to uh, uh, he went to the VA clinic and asked to be examined uh, for Agent Orange damage. Well, they put him through a whole battery of uh, of uh, medical professionals. Uh, they started out with Agent Orange, uh, then they looked at all his uh, various uh, injuries. Um, uh, at one point, he uh, was sent to a psychiatrist uh, who talked to him about his uh, war experiences and who said to him, uh, uh, have you been having any suicidal thoughts? If you have, uh, we've got plenty of medications here to help you. And this guy uh, said, listen, I survived Vietnam. Why would I want to kill myself now? Uh. And that raises a fascinating question because uh, we are in the middle of a... Uh, yeah, the number of vets who are committing suicide is uh, remarkably high. Last summer, the uh, VA re- released its most recent data showing that 7,400 vets took their own lives in 2014, which was the most recent year available. Wow. That's a national suicide rate of more than 20 vets killing themselves each day. Vets account for 18% of all suicides in America while making up only 9% of the population, according to the Military Times newspaper. Uh, It also said that 70% of the vets who took their own lives were not regular users of VA services. Middle-aged to older vets are more disposed to take their own lives. In 2014, approximately 65% of the vets who died from suicide were 50 years old or older. After adjusting for differences in age and gender, the risk for suicide was 21% higher for vets than for the civilian population. For male vets, the risk was 18% higher than it was for civilian men, and for female vets, it was 24% higher than civilian women. When I think back to my friend who said, you know, I survived Vietnam. Why would I want to kill myself now? Yeah. I think the answer is that it is the whole concept of moral injury. Uh, I think that 
moral injury is really what's driving uh, the veteran suicide rates. Mm-hmm. I talked with a a uh, psychiatrist in Milwaukee. I mentioned her earlier, uh, Kathy Capolito, Capolito, Capolilo, and she told me that she was trying talk therapy with uh, an Iraqi vet. This was a guy who had been captured at one point by the Iraqis and had been pretty badly uh, abused. When he uh, managed to escape, uh, he then took his anger out on other Iraqis uh, and uh, treated them equally badly. They talked for a long time, and and, uh, nothing that the psychiatrist said could uh, ease his PTSD. Finally, he looked at her and said, you know, I'm just a monster, uh, and I'm going to have to live with that fact for the rest of my life. Mm. Well, I think it's that attitude uh, that's driving our suicide rate. Yes. Mm. Good morning, caller. Thank you for waiting. What is your name, please? How can we help you? Good morning, Jacobus. This is Mary. Hey, Mary. Good Good, morning to you. Good morning. Eric, my observation is, and what I've read, that a lot of PTSD is being uh, experienced by even non-combat soldiers. And a lot of this is being uh, uh, attributed to the mandated drug use of the troops uh, and also from the effects of the multiple shots and vaccines that they receive. And some of the troops also receive uh, mandated uh, uses of speed during training and during missions. Mandatory what, Mary? Uh, Speed. Speed. Speed and um, then SSRIs are even being given pre-deployment, and then of course during their service time, and uh, a lot of them are just being cut off, and then they go cold turkey, which is causing all sorts of aberrant behavior. Of course, once they they're they're just cut off from all these drugs that they've they've been uh, uh, mandated to use during their service, and then when they go to the VA. What are they being given again but SSRIs? Yeah. And um, I'll get off the phone so you two can discuss that. Is there another question you may have for Eric oh, when you're done? No, that's. I think that's probably a, a lot to discuss. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Thank Mary. You, you betcha. So Bye-bye. <clears throat> Mary has touched on a, a really relevant point. Um, 50% of the vets who come back from, uh, uh, from combat uh, complain of... Uh, chronic pain, and the makers, for instance, of cortisone had insisted that, that opioids uh, were, not, were not addictive. They said that they were prescribing cortisone uh, at such low levels that, that uh, uh, it was safe and it was not, uh, it was not addictive. However, that, uh, that turned out to be false, uh, and for four or five years, uh, between about, uh, I think, oh, 2000, uh, 2006 to 2010 or 12, um, the VA's use of opioids uh, increased four or five-fold. Uh, then when, when all of these guys got addicted uh, and... Actually, uh, it turned out that the manufacturers of cortisone lied about uh, the addictiveness of, of uh, that particular drug. Uh, they, in 2006 or 2007, they 
admitted in court that they had misled doctors, regulators, uh, and everyone else, and uh, they were fined, I think, $600 million as a result, the company and three of the top executives. Yeah. With that, the VA began cutting back on uh, on opioids, prescription painkillers, yeah. and uh, the vets couldn't get them anymore. They were addicted to them. And so a lot of vets uh, have turned to heroin instead. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's cheaper uh, yeah, than cortisone. It's easier to get. Uh, you don't need a prescription. And so we've got an epidemic of, uh, of heroin users, uh, and a large number of them uh, are, are vets. Yes. In my area of the world, uh, the, the other portion of these are coal miners, We've got a lot of coal miners who are about as badly beat up as the vets, uh, and they, uh, a large number of them, uh, got addicted to painkillers. Uh, and uh, then when they became unavailable, turned to heroin. In fact, uh, there was a recent study that suggested that 75% of all new heroin users uh, had been addicted to painkillers originally. Huh. Wow. It's... Uh... Yeah, we got to run for another break here, the last break of the show. I do know, Eric, when I read, read your blog, the nation's mm-hmm. vets becoming addicted to opioid painkillers, you say it says indeed more than 50% of all veterans enrolled. Now, I don't know if enrolled means that you have to go to battle or if Mary says even the ones who are not going to battle. So Even the ones not going to battle. Exactly. Yeah, so the ones who are in the service. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. We're going to continue more with Eric Newhouse when we come back. Stay tuned, please.
last night on the news, they're talking about women who uh, soldiers who are Marines in this case who were been picture photographed in the nude. I don't know what the pictures were about, if it was like uh, secret pictures or if they were party pictures. We don't know. But these pictures have been have been published on Facebook somewhere. Some you got to I don't know how to get there. It doesn't matter. The point is these women have been invaded in part of the privacy that uh, that will traumatize them probably for the rest of their life with the trauma that you already have. And uh, so having Eric in the studio, or not in the studio, gee, Eric, I wish you could be in the studio with me. Me too. We would have uh, have a cup of coffee and we'll just looking at each other as we're talking about this because it's uh, often when you see the facial expressions of somebody you're talking with, it, it enhances the conversation, I always feel. Uh, but I see your picture on the book, and I know what you look like. You and I have met personally, and so I, I can I can do that. But uh, what what a field to be in. You know that I always wanted to be a journalist uh, when I was younger, and I uh, then somebody said maybe what you should do is first learn how to speak the language, which of course I <laughs> no, but it was not that. I was just I went to school for journalism, but mm-hmm. I felt the school for journalism in the Netherlands was uh, was very free to the point that the students were telling the teachers what they thought they should learn. And so there were teachers who were literally pestered away because they said, no, there are certain principles that you need to understand and the students didn't want to learn it. They said, well, we want to do this and this and this. And they literally pestered the, the, the teachers away. And I said, you know, maybe that's not my cup of tea. And I decided to go to university and study the Dutch language and I thought, you know, I got to be able to to speak and, and, and write correctly when I write articles because you see so many mistakes in spelling and grammar in uh, in, in journalism. And uh, so then my, my life took a whole different route. And here I am actually having my own radio show and, and I've written articles about different topics. So journalism is still part of my life, but now from a different angle. But what you have done and your passion and not just the passion that you have by writing these stories you are actually working with the people who want to share the story with you. You are there as a receiver for them so they can speak their voice. And and then you write it with their approval. You write it in, in articles and in books and in blogs. And what a what a what a wonderful way of serving your country. I am uh, also at the moment working with National Public Radio ah. uh, on uh, the series of story, stories on uh, prescription painkillers in the civilian population yeah. and also uh, in the uh, veterans' population. Yes. And one of the things that I found was a report by the Center for Investigative Reporting, which said that prescriptions for four opioids, hydrocodone, oxycodone, methadone, and morphine, surged by 270% between 2000 and 2012, leading to an addiction and fatal overdose rate that's twice the national average. In 2014, the VA said that it issued 1.7 million prescriptions for for painkillers to 443 vets to be taken at home. The VA Inspector General said, and I quote, between 2010 and 2015, the number of veterans addicted to opioids rose 55% to 
to a total of roughly 68,000. This figure represents about 13% of all veterans currently prescribed opioids. And they are close quotes. The VA was troubled by that, and it began cutting back its painkiller prescriptions in 2010. It said that the number of vets receiving painkillers dropped by 115,000 individuals between 2012 and 2015, and it now has 100,000 fewer vets on long-term opioid therapy. Still, it says it treated 66,000 vets for opioid addiction in fiscal 2016. And the VA says that vets are 10 times more likely than the average American to abuse opioids and that such abuse is a leading cause of homelessness among vets. So we've clearly got a problem there. And the medical industry uh, and the VA uh, are clearly a, uh, a part of that. Boy, you know, when you say those kind of things, uh, you can think conspiracy. You can say, oh, why? It's the prescription drug companies behind it, pushing it, making money, and they're mm-hmm. going to get paid for by the government, so they'll have a guaranteed paycheck. At the same time, you say, are we trying to shut people up? Are we trying to not get the stories out because we're numbing them in the mind? We're numbing them with the pain. We're numbing them so that they will not make a splash and and bring concern amongst the population. Uh, it probably is, again, a combination of the two, don't you think, Eric? Yeah, I think so. I've argued for years that uh, what the VA has been doing is just enormously counterproductive. It brings vets in uh, for one-on-one talk therapy uh, or group therapy sessions, gets them all uh, stirred up and rattled up, uh, sends them home agitated, uh, remembering what had happened to them, and it sends them home uh, with a uh, brown paper bag full of prescription drugs uh, that numb them up and dumb them up uh, until the the next uh, therapy session uh, a week later. I have argued for years that that yeah, that's just a terrible thing to be doing to people who deserve much better. Now, within the group, if we take all the veterans, okay, we make no exception. We take the whole group. And now within the group, we look at the people who say, well, I am a vet. I have nothing really going on with me. But if I need any health care, I'll just go and get free health care from, uh, from uh, the, the, the VA. Um, then sometimes I wonder, you've done your time. You have served the country. We're really grateful i mean there's not like a quick quick grateful we're grateful i really understand more and more what it means what they have done but at the same time if people like that who actually could go back into society go to a regular doctor and just get treatments that they need for them to use up the dollars from the va to get the free treatment they're taking time away time away from those who really need it and that is something I have a question about at times in my mind, and it, it's something that frustrates me. Am I fair to have that kind of thinking? Do you feel that no matter if you are not injured and you need help or if you're really injured and you need help, uh, it's all the same? Don't you think it would be more helpful to streamline the VA services if those who could really at this point take care of themselves do so 
and leave the time and the dollars for the v- from the VA for those who actually really need it right now? I agree that those who really need it uh, should be given preferential tr- treatment, but I also uh, think that everybody who has served uh, deserves to uh, to have that treatment. Uh, I served two years, and uh, I've got to say I've, I've never been to a VA hospital. Uh, I can afford to take care of myself, and I do. But I think the flip side is that uh, the vets who need help the most tend to be the ones who uh, reject the VA system. The reason for that is the VA is just like the Army. It's a hurry-up-and-wait military bureaucracy. And a lot of the vets who are, uh, particularly the ones who have moral injuries uh, and who are are, uh, very resistant of authority, they can't stand to deal with the VA. They say to me, uh, you know, I got into a to see a psychologist, and parenthetically, uh, it can take six months to get an appointment uh, to see a psychiatrist in some places. That's right. Uh, And uh, he said, I started to talk with this person, and uh, it was clear that this person had no idea what I was talking about. So I said, have you ever been in combat? And the psychiatrist said, no, but I know a lot about it. Uh, And so the vet said, well, I just got up and walked out of his office and said, there's no sense in my talking to you. So an awful lot of vets who really, really need the help uh, don't even want to go anywhere near the VA to get it. Mm. And they generally can't afford to pay for it themselves, so they end up going without. I see. Yeah, I... Oh, boy, it's a very compli- complex story and, and, and a situation for for the veterans and for the economy and for, for the American... The majority of American people just don't know, just like the psychiatrist hasn't been in combat. We don't know what's really going on. But at the same time, the whole veterans affair, the way things are being done, need to be updated, need to be, uh, there is too much work and there's not enough people. And and so something, and that's why I'm saying, if there is not enough money and there's not enough people, those who really need to help should be helped first. And, uh, you know, well, we'll see. But we have a caller on hold who would like to ask you a question or share a comment. Good okay. Morning. Good morning, caller, for doing so. What is your name, please, and how can we help you? Well, I just wanted to bring up the point, not necessarily just for veterans, it's horrible what's happened to them with the suicides and whatnot, but when people go in for surgeries, I mean, pain is part of life. We we deal with it however we deal with it. If, if people have addictive tendencies, it's a personal problem that they that they get hooked on those pills and... I mean, what's the other solution, I guess, is my question. What's the, Other than taking these pain pills to numb the pain so that they can get by and get through the recovery after the surgeries that they need, what else is there out there? I mean, you know, we can't just tell people to think happy thoughts and stuff like that. It's like when I had a tooth removed, I dealt with it until the pain became unbearable. And then I went in, and they gave me a prescription for one of these hydrocodone deals, and I took, you know, the pills for like three or four days, and I didn't even use them all. And when I was done, I threw them away. <laughs> so it's yeah. just, it's a personal choice that these people continue to use the pills long enough that they, that they get hooked on them and then they continue to use them because it affects their brain and affects the way they think and things like that. I just, I'm wondering what's the other choice out there because I just, I kind of get irritated with everybody bad mouthing the drug companies when <laughs> one of the biggest things that makes our quality of life at this point in time so good 
is the fact that we do have pharmaceuticals. We do have things to give to our children when they get a cold or they get the flu. And we have all these ways to keep people alive and to, to make it a better quality of life. So what else is there out there other than just bashing the pharmaceutical companies all the time? What else is there as a solution? Uh, well, I know exactly what you're saying. I, uh, I think that the wise thing to do uh, is to take uh, uh, a, a drug for as long as you need it uh, and then throw it away. What happens in the VA yeah, is that uh, these vets are prescribed drugs long-term. Uh, I talked with a vet a couple of days ago uh, who takes 18 pills a day, uh, and he tells his doctors, why do I need this many? I don't, I don't feel right about this. And they say, no, nah, you need them, just take them. And so he's taken them, but he's concerned that they're interacting with each other in ways that he doesn't understand. Uh, and that they're ultimately going to be bad for him. There are some things that you can do. Uh, the, uh, the VA is now offering co- courses in uh, Qigong and in Tai Chi. Uh, and in both of those, uh, you focus your energy, uh, you uh, improve your strength, uh, and uh, that exercise will, will uh, reduce the pain that you're in. Yeah, and they can be uh, they can be effective. Well, it, it's uh, I hear I hear completely what you're saying because we've been talking about this now, and I've been reading your blogs, and you look at the facts, uh, what it is, and and caller. Uh, sorry, you didn't you didn't give us your name, so I cannot address you with you by your name. But I I hear your frustration too, and it sounds indeed that uh, there are too many people bashing the prescription drug companies. And I'm not sitting here politically correct because I have a supplement store myself. Uh, I chose to go that direction. I am not against prescription drug companies. Uh, it's not, uh, let me say it this way. I am not against prescription drugs. There is a, mm-hmm. pla- there is a place for them. Yep. But there is, there is a place for them and there is a time for them. But what, when you have people who are not being told to get off them when they're ready or yeah. when the uh, when the actual problem is not addressed. And as we're talking today about moral injury from trauma, uh, so the, 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 the pain in this case, as, as uh, we're talking about war veterans coming back, having experienced trauma and dealing with guilt, dealing with frustration, dealing with the fact that their own moral values have been violated while they were serving their country with the best intentions, coming back, now they're injured, now they're, they're blind, their eye, they lost an eye, they lost a hearing, they got ringing of the ears for the rest of their lives. They have tingling in hands and feet. They're dealing with weight issues, dietary issues. Uh, they're dealing with bowel issues. Maybe they've been shot Yes, there needs to be treatment for that. However, is it only prescription drugs that are the solution for that? Of course, I hear what you're saying. If your child gets sick and you have a cold or a flu and you want to give them something and it is Sudafed or it is something like that, you can do that. It's available. But we're not talking here about prescription drugs that you're discussing. We're talking about some serious issues where there is opioid use and SSRIs and uh, and uh, MAO inhibitors or, that are been prescribed 
to people to handle trauma, to handle pain, and they're never taken off it. And they, they, at some point, the price never goes down. Prescription drug companies never have a blue light special on Tuesdays. It's always the price. They set the pricing themselves, and they have whatever reason to charge $3,000, $10,000 a month for their medications. It is the drug companies, because of how they're put together, that are ruining the, 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 the funds for the VA. It's not the fact that we cannot get doctors to work for the VA. There is just no money to, to pay the doctors because the prescription drugs are so expensive and need to be paid for. And the, the price is, is out of hand, through the roof. And so there has to, we have to come up with other solutions on, besides the prescription drugs. And, and Eric has done enough interviews with people who say, there are other ways to handle the trauma that our veterans are coming home with. And, and that is what we're discussing. I would love to do a show sometime about just prescription drugs and the pros and cons. But I already said some of it in a nutshell. So uh, anyway, Eric, um, I know we're coming very closer to the end of the show. Uh, we just got a few more minutes, of, actually a minute left. Um, I, I already want to start thanking you. Thanking you for 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 spending your time with us. What a blast! And that is no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, it's a pleasure, Jacobus. I uh, hope that we've enlightened some folks and uh, uh, helped people understand some issues yeah. that are very complex in our country today. Absolutely, and and we're going to have Eric back. We just before the show, we talked about it. He'll be back on April twenty second. And then we're going to talk more about this and the next part of this chapter, which is how do we deal with some of the treatments and what are some of the options out there. And it's going to be another fascinating program. So, Eric, thanks for being with us. All the best with the publishing of your new book, Faces of Recovery. And you and I will be talking in about a month. That sounds great. All right. Take care of yourself, Jacobus, and thank, thank you again. Yeah, you're very welcome, Eric. Uh, folks, stay tuned for Tom Eaglehoff, and then we will be back next week, Saturday, from 8 to 11. Talk to you then. Making excellent use of your time and mind? Listening to Gesundheit with Jacobus every week.